Well, good morning, Raul. Thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, I, I'm delighted to see you again. And um, I, I hope our viewers uh, take some time to, to listen to this. Um, you're, you're certainly learned and uh, well-regarded in the employment area. So I think our topic today around subject access requests will be, be well-received. Um, do you mind um, spending just a minute or two telling, telling our viewers who you are uh, what, what, what it is you do at the firm. I think that might be very useful. Yeah, sure. And thanks very much for the uh, invitation, Tim. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Um, so I'm a partner with GQ Littler, which is uh, the UK arm of Littler, the world's largest employment practice acting for management. And my role um, is focused on supporting international clients primarily with their UK and EMEA employment law challenges. And the part of that that we particularly wanted to focus on today uh, is data subject access requests. And that is playing an increasing part of, of my role as we will explain. Um, coming up very often in cases where employees are in dispute with their employers. And they're a real challenge for our clients to deal with. And I hope we can talk today about some of the ways in which we can make that challenge a little easier to face. Great, great. And so, so in, that, in that vein, do you mind sort of telling our, our viewers stroke listeners what, what some of the key issues are um, in, in responding to subject access requests? So, one of the key issues in responding to subject access requests is just the increasing volume of them. So ever since GDPR came on the scene in, uh, well, since it came into force in 2018, we have seen the numbers of data subject access requests increase significantly. There isn't really any objective data out there for this, but it's clear anecdotally from speaking to our clients and other practitioners that it's unequivocally true that numbers have gone up. And in a sense, that's a surprise because um, employees in the UK have been able to make data subject access requests since the 1998 Data Protection Act came into effect. And they've always been part of day-to-day -day life for employment lawyers, but things really took off in the last couple of years. And I would attribute that mostly to the enormous press coverage that GDPR received when it was coming into effect. It felt mm. like suddenly the whole world was waking up to data protection law. And part of that, of course, was this subject access right. So that's one issue, the volume. Secondly, and this is related, is the, um, the pain of complying with these requests because they can be extremely broad. It's not uncommon for employees to simply request all of the data that the employer holds about them. And that can be a very difficult request to meet, partly because the data tends to be spread across a um, large number of systems, or even where it's large, where even where it's concentrated in one system, which is typically your email system, it is not um, organised by reference to data subjects. It's organised by whose mailbox uh, the email is falling into. So you've got personal data sort of widely strewn across a number of different mailboxes, tens, maybe hundreds, and then a request for copies of all of the employee's personal data. And this, this might be an employee, like a case I'm dealing with at the moment, who's been with the company for you know, nearly two decades. 
So you're reaching right back in, into the archives um, and trying to review potentially a very large quantity of documents to work out what is and isn't the, the employee's personal data. And then moving on from there, from the volume of data that comes back, you have the cost of actually reviewing the results. So, for example, if you search for the employee's name and get thousands and thousands of results, you will then need to work out what within that is their personal data and what isn't. Because if you go too inclusive and simply give the employee everything that responds to your initial searches, you risk providing them with, for example, confidential information about other employees. So you may be breaching data, your data protection obligations to those employees. Or you may be providing them with confidential information about the company because their, their personal information is mixed in the same document as that confidential information. Hmm. And that's a particular challenge when you consider the most common context for a data subject access request, which is typically an employee in some kind of dispute with their employer. It's unusual for employees for whom everything is rosy, who are happy to submit these requests. Generally, there's a broader context of litigation or similar dispute. So the employer will be particularly anxious not to give the employee um, information that they might misuse or use against the employer, potentially in a legitimate way. And they will, the employers will generally want to stick to the letter of the law in terms of what they're obliged to give. So I'd mm. say the problems are summed up as high volume of requests, very broad requests, and uh, the costs of just complying with your obligations rather than giving too much. Yeah, really, really sound uh, responses, Raul, and, and much appreciated. Um, I, I wondered if we could pivot slightly to some of the guidance that's recently come down from the Information Commissioner's Office as it relates to subject access requests. Um, you know, there, there's certainly been some guidance around requests that are perhaps categorized as manifestly excessive or uh, this, this sort of notion of pausing the clock to sort of clarify the scope. I wondered if you've uh, seen or sort of um, exercised any of this kind of enhanced guidance in your endeavors. Have, have you seen subject access requests where uh, your, your clients have gone back to the requester as the controller, have gone back to the requester and said, this is manifestly excessive or this is incredibly broad. Can you be a little more specific? Um, th there's also some guidance from the ICO that, that now says um, a subject access request is, is meant to be the sort of uh, data subject exercising their rights and, and not sort of antagonistically weaponizing a request to obtain early disclosure effectively uh, in, in a forthcoming dispute. Uh, have you seen any of this um, kind, kind of play out with some of your corporate clients? Yeah, I mean, the, the guidance that you mentioned from the ICO team, which is, as you say, quite a recent uh, development, is, I think, a really welcome development for both uh, employers and data subjects, because the data access rights as set out in GDPR are um, very broadly drafted and very sparingly drafted. So we were, we were really in need of someone 
trying to fill in the gaps and the ICO is the only person who the only body that could could do that. Now the ICO's guidance developed a lot in the course of the, uh, the public consultation so the initial guidance that they set out at the beginning of the year was I think a lot less helpful than what and they ended up with. So I really welcome the ICO's openness and collaboration with um, the respondents to the consultation exercise, which included the co uh, response that I took part in on behalf of the Employment Lawyers Association. I think they've done a, a good job there. But at the same time, there are limitations to that guidance. So for example, it's helpful that the ICO has acknowledged that proportionality is relevant to responding to a data subject access request, mm. because before they did that, we didn't have anything that, that made that absolutely clear um, in relation to GDPR. On the other hand, um, they are they take their role as guardians of data subject access rights seriously, and the general tone of the guidance is clear that, that responding to data subject access requests is supposed to hurt bluntly like it is it is not going to be an easy task to respond to these requests they the, the employer is expected to take significant steps in response to them so um it's not some panacea that that can be just uh, sort of invoked to sweep away the compliance pain of DSARS but there are a series of hooks in there which uh, employers and their advisors can use to um, try to try to narrow the request so that hopefully the data sub the data subject is getting the personal data that they really want, and the employer isn't having to trawl through or pay someone else to trawl through a load of potential personal data that actually no one really cares about. Yeah, that, that's an interesting dynamic. Um, now that I'm thinking about it a bit, I mean, this sort of intersection of electronic data interrogation, e-disclosure, and sort of responding to what are the rights of data subjects. Uh, I mean, I think we do we do treat it as a bit of a micro discovery or, or, or disclosure exercise because those are the the technologies and workflows we're familiar with, and and they are effective. Uh, but but nobody's recovering any costs from responding to a subject access request. I mean, they are they are inherently a uh, a whirlwind of paper cuts that that, that yeah. just keep just keep coming. Uh, in terms of in terms of that, uh, in terms of the, your your sort of anecdotal um, ob observation about them being on the rise. I mean, our our firm is also seen this i mean we're we're not a law firm uh, of course um we we work with a lot of corporations and law firms um responding to large-scale government investigations uh and, and even things like subject access requests and because we've ha because we have quite a diverse portfolio of, of clients we have also seen a pattern of dsar kind of increase in the last i don't know two two years since may of of 2018 and i think you rightly pointed out that i think public attention around the gdpr created a bit of uh the sort of undertow in the current of of um perhaps information people could could search on the internet they could sort of antagonistically file uh, an access request um I, i'm not suggesting that they're all uh you know, sort of malicious in nature. I, I won't assert that by, by any means, 
but I, but I think it's become a bit more of a mainstream uh, endeavor to do so. On, on that note, um, and, and this is probably something that, that you talk to your partners and your clients quite a lot about, we had luckily for, for the sake of millions in this country, we've had an extension of the job support scheme or, or furlough. Mm-hmm. This off, obviously offers a lifeline uh, to, to, to quite a lot of people who can still exercise and leverage that scheme. But when that comes to an end, uh, people are companies are going to restructure. There'll be insurmountable debt. There will be redundancies a, as a result of all of this. Sociologically, one assumes that this will just create further angst. Do you do you suspect, or would you be so bold as to predict a rise? And subject access requests when, when these kind of support mechanisms come to an end. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, it's um, it's a, a point that I think actually we've already been wrangling with. Um, so the current, the most uh, recent extension of the furlough scheme took us up to the end of March, but that was maybe I don't know. Uh, there are too many to count now, but maybe the third or fourth extension that that um, the UK government has issued. And who knows whether it will be the final one, because last time around, they said this is the last time. So who knows? Um, Certainly, it looks likely to be the last with the current progress on vaccines. But looking at the impact of the scheme, I think we've the reason I say we've already seen it is not just because of the previous sort of false ends of the furlough scheme. It's because the furlough scheme only has been successful in supporting a lot of jobs but not all jobs. That was a deliberate policy choice. And it means that lots of people have already lost their jobs, um, even though the furlough scheme continues. And I think the impact of the current pandemic has has been really significant on on the impact on employees and on employee litigation, because not only are employees and more people losing their jobs who normally would, and therefore a greater number of people potentially in dispute with their employers, but also employees understandably feel a lot um, less positive about their prospects of quickly finding another role in the current market, which means that where they might otherwise have sort of chalked it up to experience and accepted the amount of enhanced redundancy perhaps on offer and realistically hoped to be in another job before that money ran out, now they are examining um, the decision in more detail, challenging it, more likely to seek to litigate and that has and will um, drive an increase in the number of data subject access requests. I think that I don't think there's anything special about furlough that makes DSARS more likely from furlough related dismissals but I think there will always be a percentage of um, employee disputes um, that leads to a DSAR with which an employer has to comply with, and that's quite a high percentage. So when the um, former number, when the number of disputes goes up, the number of DSARs will also rise. Mm. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to go back to something uh, that, that we talked, we, or we touched upon briefly a, a few minutes ago in, in our last kind of five minutes here. Um, t- to what extent do, do you see... The, the overall role of, of technology in responding to, to access requests. I, I, I will be the first to admit as a huge proponent of technology and someone who leverages it for, for, for many different reasons in our firm, 
uh, again, responding, doing data forensic work, large-scale discovery uh, disclosure exercises for the European Commission, whatever it might be. Uh, technology has, has a place in, in, in the law and how we respond to data-driven legal requests. But surely technology isn't a magic bullet and, and it doesn't solve the entire uh, problem or, or mitigate all, all avenues. So could you just speak briefly on how you sort of perceive technology playing a role in subject access res responses uh, and, and where you think sort of uh, workflows and, and, and other bits sort of uh, integrate in, into yeah. that? So I think, um, Tim, the, the um, extent to which technology can ease the burden of compliance with data subject access requests depends to a large degree on the type of data that you're dealing with. So at one end of the spectrum, if you think about the subject access requests outside the uh, employment sphere, for example, making a data subject access request of um, an e-commerce site that you use or um, a video streaming service that you subscribe to, I understand that some of those companies have already established near total automation in their response to DSARS because the way that they deal with customer data is very automated, it's fully automated. So therefore you can automate the DSAR process. The problem is of course, that in the employment sphere, the way we deal with employee personal data is much less automated or not automated at all. And therefore it's much more difficult to automate the data subject access response. So for example, we might be able to get to a decent level of automation on a structured HR database, um, on uh, timesheets and on other you know, benefits information. We're never, I think, with technology that stands today, going to be able to fully automate a um, review of, uh, a, a, of email data in a way that sees um, technology just identifying the, definitively identifying personal data We've had some extensive discussions about this, Tim, but it, it mm. and the point that you've made to me is that in a, in a, in a contrast to e-discovery exercises, personal data, what you're looking for in a personal data review exercise is actually very heterogeneous, um, mm. comes in many different forms, is, is difficult to code for. Um, I don't know if you want to expand on that. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it... Personal data, PII is just wholly subjective. Um, and, and that's part of the difficulty in having, having programmatic solutions for, for identification. I can find Raul, I can find Tim, I can find Dan Ruprecht, I can find entities, I can find patterns of national insurance numbers. I, I can find that kind of bibliographic information, mm. date of birth, what, what have you. The difficulty is in, um, we went on holiday to, to Crete recently and, um, you know, all, all of these kinds of things where the rigid formulaic PII isn't there. So you're talking about something that's very personal. The inference is that it's about me or my wife or my mm. baby going to church or, 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 or something, something like that, yeah. going to the GP for, for whatever. And, and that's not going to be necessarily programmatically identifiable. Um, if you have millions of records, you could use concept clustering or thematic searching to maybe percolate some of that to the surface. 
but you're never going to programmatically identify all of it. And, and that's where human beings and, and, um, and lawyers still need to put, put eyes on documents. We, we do this from a proportional and sort of reasonability kind of measure with predictive coding, continuous active learning, continual multimodal learning or, or CAMEL. I mean, we train the system on tens of thousands of documents and say, relevant, not relevant. Computer says, do you like this? You say, yeah, that, that looks good. Uh, give me more of that. And, and in disclosure and in the way the courts have sort of dealt with this in the past, there's a general acceptance that in a disclosure exercise, that's doable and that's good enough. Um, in a subject access response, the employees have, the subjects have requested all of their PII. There's no room for good enough, but I actually defer to you on that. I mean, is there a concept or is there a path to sort of good enough in, in a subject access request? Yeah, so so I think there, there is, Tim, and I think that's at the heart of um, addressing the challenge of DSARS to return to the start of our discussion. So... Um, and also was is reflected in the recent ICO guidance that we also discussed, the concept that, as the ICO put it, um, companies do not have to do things which are unreasonable or disproportionate to comply with their subject access requests, which strikes me as slightly odd that it, it should almost go without saying that we don't have to do things that are unreasonable, but in any event, it's useful to have that acknowledgement. So I think where technology can and is already starting to help these sorts of employment related data subject access requests is not in removing uh, human review, it's in making it more efficient. It's, mm. like, um, it's like the difference between um, you know, cutting a piece of wood with a, an old handsaw and cutting it with a, a power tool. It, mm. it, 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 you still need to be there, you still need to, um, to direct the tool, you still need to make the decisions about where to make the cut, but you're able to chop a lot more wood in the same amount of time mm. if it's done correctly. And therefore you, you, you leverage cost savings as a result. Um, and I think the market has been um, surprisingly slow to leverage that. And I think that's because of um, the historically low volumes of DSARs that we've seen in the mm. UK, considering how many you know could have been brought. Um, I think now, well, we're, you and I are working on a response to that, and um, I'm sure others in the market are as well, of um, using technology to, to make this process much more efficient. That will, that will undoubtedly help employers, but it won't avoid the whole problem. Of course, of course. Well, Raul, uh, I'm conscious of time and uh, of the time we've allotted and, uh, and, and that of our viewers as well. So I will... Uh, I will thank you very much for your time, uh, and uh, I really appreciate your your insight on this on this matter. So hopefully, uh, speak again soon. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Tim. See you soon.